All right, let's start that over. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Numbers chapter 13. And as you're turning, let me just say out loud what I trust we are all thinking throughout this conference, and I'm certainly thinking as I'm standing here remotely, I really wish we could be together face to face. I have been so looking forward to being together face to face for this conference specifically to encourage one another in God's word to live and lead the church for his glory among the nations. I am so thankful for the part that Radius is playing in the accomplishment of the Great Commission, in the training and equipping of laborers for the harvest field, for the hardest to reach people groups and places on the planet. And I, I want to say just before I dive in to anything at all, how thankful I am for God's grace in Radius, in leadership at Radius, and in the brothers and sisters who are being trained now in different places in the world and scattering for his glory among the nations. So let me cut right to the chase. I have a conviction that with two to three billion people who've never heard the gospel in the world, God is calling many more people to go and to take the gospel to them. Many more people. Many more people from our churches, from the church I pastor, from the church you are a part of, including potentially many people listening right now. My conviction is that the reason why two or three billion people have never heard the good news of God's love in Christ is not because God is not calling people to go to them. It's because we are not obeying his call. The reason Two or three billion people in the world have little to no knowledge of the gospel is because we in the church are facing a crisis of obedience. Which is why, as I looked at this topic given to me, living for God's glory must move us toward obedience. My mind and heart as I prayed immediately went to Numbers chapter 13. So picture the scene. There they stood on the brink of the promised land. God had promised his people that he was going to lead them out of slavery, bring them into a fruitful, abundant, prosperous place. It's not where they had lived. They had lived in slavery, oppressed and abused, overworked and overwhelmed by the Egyptian dynasty that had ruled them. But God had delivered them Miraculously, he turned an entire river into blood. He sent frogs everywhere, then gnats, 
than flies. He struck down livestock. God sent boils on the skin of the captors of his people, followed by harrowing hail from heaven. Then a swarm of locusts, followed by three days of total darkness. In the end, Egyptian households suffered the loss of their firstborn sons. And before you knew it, they were handing the Israelites goods and gold and sending them on their way. It didn't take long for the Egyptians to wish they had not done that, so they started pursuing the Israelites all the way to the edge of the Red Sea. They had them trapped until God split the sea in half. And he told his people, walk through the sea. And they walked through the sea. When they got to the other side and looked in their rearview mirrors, the water came crashing down on their enemies. In the days to come, God led them through a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. When they were thirsty, he gave them water from rocks. When they were hungry, he gave them bread from the sky. He gave them his word. He showed them his grace. And every step of the way, he promised them the same thing he had promised to their forefathers. I am leading you to a great land, and it's all going to be yours. So they arrived, and finally they could see it. They decided to send some spies to check it out. And the spies came back with a report. This land is awesome. So pick up with me in Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, however, and this is where everything changes, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. God had called them to this land. But now the majority of spies say, we can't take it. It's not safe. It's not secure. We can't do it. We won't do it. And the people responded, chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. 
The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Oh, do you see what just happened? So see the anatomy of disobedience. So if you're taking notes, and let this cement like the anatomy of disobedience in at least four ways. One, they disregarded the goodness of God. Like, listen to their first words. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Like what? In an instant, they had totally forgotten the glorious grace of God. How he had delivered them miraculously from slavery. Brought them in so many miraculous ways to the brink of this good land, exceedingly good land. And here they are saying, God is not good to us. He should have left us to die in slavery. They disregarded the goodness of God. Second, they doubted the greatness of God. They doubted the greatness of God. Chapter 14, verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Like, don't miss the line of thought here. Like, the Lord, Yahweh, brought us to this land to die. Like, to kill us. It's, it's as if they had forgotten the Lord, Yahweh, split a sea in half to save them. It's if, as if they'd forgotten plague after plague after plague by which God had demonstrated his power on their behalf, his revelation of himself to them in a consuming fire on majestic Mount Sinai. And here they are saying, we, we can't do this. Notice what they're doing here. They are magnifying potential problems. You look back at that spies report in chapter 13, verse 32, 33. Nephilim were a race of giants, large people. The reality is they were likely small in number, but the way they're talking here, it sounds like everyone in the promised land is Goliath himself. It's not true, but they had convinced themselves that it was true. And the more they thought about the people, the bigger they got. Has that ever happened to you? You ever come face to face with an obstacle, a barrier in your life, in the church, in the world? And the more you think about it, the bigger and bigger and bigger it gets to where it starts to drive you to worry and fear. They magnified potential promises potential problems, and they minimized powerful promises. So they're magnifying problems, and they're minimizing promises. Look back at chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. Did you hear that? God said, I am giving this land to the people of Israel. But they didn't believe it. Now, don't miss this. You've got to see this. Look at chapter 13, verse 22. Look at chapter 13, verse 22. It says, they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. So that's interesting. They went to Hebron. And there they saw, keep going on, the descendants of Anak. 
these people who would intimidate them. Now we need to realize the significance of where they were standing in Hebron. So hold your place here in Numbers 13 and go back with me to Genesis chapter 13. Look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. When God had called Abraham and said, I'm going to give you a land to settle in, to make it yours. Where is that land? Well, you look back at Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at, where? Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. At Hebron. So you read on in Genesis. And you'll never guess where Abraham and Sarah decide to be buried. At Hebron. As well as Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob, Israel, and Leah buried at Hebron. Go to Genesis chapter 15. Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. And after they, afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So this is the place where God made his covenant with Abram. Said to him, this is your land. I'm going to give you and all your descendants this land. So now in Numbers chapter 13, it's here, like in the land of promise where the patriarchs to whom that promise had been given are buried. The people of God are saying, we can't take this land. Like you would think they'd have gotten to Hebron, fallen on their faces in awe and said, God is faithful. He's brought us back. Instead, they were so preoccupied with the sandal sizes of a few people in Hebron, and they said, we can't do it. They minimized God's promises while they magnified their problems, ultimately doubting the greatness of God. They disregarded the goodness of God. They doubted the greatness of God. And as a result, so the anatomy of disobedience, they defied the word of God. Chapter 14, verse 4, they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They turn around in defiance of God himself, the Lord, Yahweh. And as a result of this one decision, anatomy of disobedience, they disqualify themselves from the blessing of God. They disregarded God's goodness, doubted God's greatness, defied God's word, and as a result, they disqualified themselves 
from God's blessing. And that is the point of the story. Disobedience robs the people of God from the blessing of God. The 10 spies here in Numbers die almost immediately. And every single person, apart from Joshua and Caleb, are sentenced to die in the wilderness. Here, God's sobering words to his people. In chapter 14, verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And yet, they still don't get it. Like They try to fight after God has said this, and they are defeated soundly. Mark it down, brothers and sisters. If God is for you, no one can stand against you. But if God is against you, you have no hope. But there's two men who were different. Chapter 14, verse 5. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. So now let's flip it. What's the anatomy of obedience? Oh, it's the opposite of what we've seen. Anatomy of obedience, they believed the goodness of God. This is a good land, they said, and God has made it good for us. They knew that God had been gracious to them. That's why he had brought them to this point. They believed the goodness of God. Second, they trusted the greatness of God. So you keep reading. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. God will give it to us. This is the point. Yes, there were some big people. And notice what Caleb and Joshua are saying here. They're they're not saying, piece of cake, guys, like we can do this. They're saying, yes, they're big. They're bigger than us. We cannot do this alone. But that's the point. God is with us, and he is bigger. He's far more powerful. And what he has chosen to do all throughout the history of his people is to put them in places where they cannot do things on their own. So that when he shows his power and his faithfulness, only he will receive the glory as he provides for his people. We can trust his greatness. You see, where others saw an obstacle, Caleb and Joshua saw an opportunity. Were there obstacles? Certainly. But in Joshua and Caleb's eyes, they were simply opportunities for God to show his greatness. Turn turn over to Joshua chapter 15. You got to see this. Joshua chapter 15. So once they make it to the promised land, Caleb is allotted his portion of the land. And check this out. Joshua chapter 15, 
verse 13. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb the son of Jepuna a portion among the people of Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak. Anak, Sheshai, and Ahiman, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. <laughs> Caleb took them down. Obstacles are opportunities. What if what we perceive as obstacles to going to the nations are actually opportunities for God to show his glory among the nations. And not just among the nations, but his glory in our lives. Don't miss it. While others worried about man's power, Caleb and Joshua were confident in God's presence. You look back in chapter 14, verse 9. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. And here it is. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You cannot stop the people of God with the presence of God, period. We know this. We know this as we think about mission. Like, we know God's promise where all of this is headed. Revelation 5, Revelation chapter 7. Every nation, tribe, tongue gathered around his throne, singing his praises for his salvation from every single people, tribe, and tongue. We know, Jesus has said, I am with you to bring that about. You can't stop the fulfillment of God's promises in and through the lives of God's people with God's presence. And so they followed the word of God. They didn't defy his word, they followed his word. They stood up to the people and it almost cost them their lives. You read here how all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But at that moment, the glory of God rose up on behalf of his servants and in their obedience so keep going here the anatomy of obedience they would experience the blessing of God they trusted the goodness of God the greatness of God and they followed the word of God and as a result they would experience the blessing of God they would go into the land Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim would become the dominant tribe in the north of Canaan. And Caleb from the tribe of Judah would become the dominant tribe in the south. So, what about us? What about you? What about me? What about God's people right now? Think about it, like, who was this book, Numbers, written for? It was written, certainly, for the sons and daughters who would enter into the promised land. It was written, in part, to remind them of the sins of their moms and dads. It was written to remind them that God can only be provoked so far. And not just them, but for generations to come, 
we see the Israelites in the Psalms and the prophets. And then the church in the New Testament. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4. Looking back and continually lamenting what happened at Kadesh Barnea. That moment when the people of God stepped back in fear instead of stepping forward in faith. When the people of God faced a decision and they chose to disobey. And so I would submit that the same question sits before us as the people of God today. In a much different way, I'm not saying that our situation today is exactly the same as what happened here in Numbers 13 and 14. But I do know that based on the rest of Scripture, this story is intended to confront you and me right now in a fresh way under God's Spirit with a decision, with questions that we need to answer. Questions for you and me, like, will we turn from God and trust in ourselves? Or will we turn to God and trust in Christ? People say, "I, I don't know if I can go to this place or that place. What will happen to me there? What if God calls me to West Africa in the middle of Boko Haram, Somalia in the middle of Al-Shabaab, the middle of ISIS in the Middle East? What if God calls me to these places? Like, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean about potentially having a family? Will I have a husband? Will I have a wife? All kinds of questions that the more we think about can become bigger and bigger, drive us to worry, fear, in so many different ways. That's where I just want to remind us straight from God's word, don't forget who God is, the God who is calling you and me and people from across our churches and people across this conference. This God is good. He is so good, so gracious. And just look back. This is the core of the gospel. God loves you, me, so much that despite our sin and rebellion against him, he has pursued us. He's come to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus has lived the life we could not live life of perfect obedience to the Father. He has died the death we deserve to die. He has died on a cross to pay the price for all of our sins. And he has risen from the grave. He has conquered death itself so that you and I might be forgiven of all our sins before God and might have eternal life in God. What love, what grace, what mercy. So, just think about it. If you and I can trust God, 
to save us from our sin for eternity. If we can trust God to save us from an eternal hell, then surely we can trust God to lead our lives on this earth. He's worthy of that trust. If there's any fear that rises up in any one of us when it comes to total surrender to God, just remind you, don't forget who you're surrendering to. He loves you. And he knows so much better than you or I do what is best for our lives. Like once you realize who God is and his goodness, you realize the most foolish thing you or I could do could be putting, would be putting conditions on our obedience to him. Once you realize who God is, you realize how foolish it would be to not trust him. You realize that's what I need to be afraid of. I need to be afraid of putting conditions on obedience to God. Because I believe he's good and I trust he is great. Like, will there be obstacles in you and me and us and our churches? As he sends us out and sends people out from our churches, from this conference, will there be obstacles? Absolutely. Are there challenges? Absolutely. Are there big obstacles and big challenges? Yes. But our God is bigger. He's bigger. He's greater. Obstacles are opportunities for the display of his glory in greater ways than we would ever see if we shrink back from those obstacles. Like I, I just immediately think about my uh, older brother. Um, so his name is Steve. Uh, I, I growing up was like just a little runt, like smallest kid in the class, short, and as a result, got picked on different things like that uh, as the little kid. And uh, my brother Steve was a little bit different. Uh, so Steve was, uh, just to give you maybe a glimpse, was the heavyweight state wrestling champion in Georgia uh, his senior year in high school. So heavyweight state wrestling champion. I remember the championship uh, match. Like he just picked up this other guy, this other heavyweight guy and threw him down on the ground. So that's, that was Steve. So I remember one time when I was uh, in ninth grade, I was a freshman. So I'd made the basketball team and had gone to basketball camp during the summer. And uh, when we got to basketball camp, word got around that the seniors liked to uh, do some initiation with the freshmen. I remember me and another freshman buddy of mine are sitting in our dorm room and uh, all of a sudden the door bangs open. A couple seniors walk in and they grab my buddy off the bed and they take him into the bathroom where I'm not sure exactly what happened. All I heard was a lot of screaming and flushing and then my buddy comes back with very wet hair. And so they put him down and then they come over to me. This guy picks me up and he turns and starts to take me out of the room 
And uh, right about that time, there's another guy, another senior guy who walks into the room and sees this guy holding me and says, wait, stop. We can't take him. Now, I had no idea who this guy was that just came around the room and said that, but I immediately loved this man. And, uh, and he said, stop, we can't take him. And this guy was holding me. He said, why not? And the guy who ran the corner into the room said, we can't take him because that's Platt's brother. And I'll never forget what happened next. Like this guy who's holding me turns at me, looks me up and down, my scrawny little frame. And he said, this is not Platt's brother. Remember his exact words. He said, this is not Platt's brother. He said, this is Platt's left leg. And I don't think he meant that as a compliment, but I was pretty, pretty proud to be Platt's left leg on that day. And he put me down on the bed and walked out. Remember another time, uh, my granddad had given me this jacket that I loved. Wore it all the time. Wore it, I mean, it was hot outside. and put it on the jacket. And so I wore it to school one day, uh, took it off, came back at the end of the day, and the jacket was gone. Somebody had stolen it. And my dad came to pick me up that day, and uh, I told him what had happened. So he goes in and starts talking to the principal about what had happened, and uh, I'm sitting there pretty upset, and uh, uh, Steve comes over to me, and he says, hey, David, I heard your jacket was stolen. I said, yeah, and it's pretty down. And he said, let me take care of this. And while my dad's talking to the principal, I see Steve walk over to this other guy in the school who's kind of known for this sort of thing and said, uh, hey, listen, I don't know what happened. My brother's jacket is gone. And if you don't have it back to me by tomorrow morning, you and I are going to have a talk. And so next morning, go to school. I'm sitting there in my first class during the day and I'm sitting near the doorway in the class and I'm looking out and I look out in the hallway and there comes Steve around the corner and you'll never guess what he's holding on to. He's holding on to my jacket and he comes, he hands it to me, he says, David, I just want you to know that no matter what happens to you, your big brother has always got your back. Now, I, I share that story with you because it is such a tiny picture. Like, I'm so thankful for my big brother, but it's such a tiny picture of what we're seeing here in God's word. When we think about significant challenges in the world, I just want you and I to remember at every moment and everything that God calls you and me to, the God of the universe, the sovereign ruler over billions of people on the planet and trillions of stars, the God who calls them all by name, the God who speaks and a world comes into being, this God has your back. <laughs> At every moment. You have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear. If God is for us, who can stand against us? No one, nothing. So believe his goodness, trust his greatness. Now and in whatever he calls us to for, for those of us who, who go and live and work among 
people groups where it's hard and difficult and dangerous for the spread of the gospel. And we face obstacles and we're tempted to magnify problems. It just seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And worry and fear are prone to set in. Step back and remember who has your back. Who's with you? The good, great God of the universe who throughout history has taken obstacles and turned them into opportunities. Will we turn from God and trust in ourselves? This is the question. Or will we turn to God, his goodness and his greatness and trust in Christ? Maybe another way to ask the question, will we sit back in fear of the world or will we step forward with faith in God's word? Like this is the question we're facing in the church right now. Will we sit back in fear of the world or will we step forward with faith in God's word? Think about it. God never promised that taking the land of Canaan would be easy, wouldn't be costly, wouldn't be dangerous. So that's not the point of the story. The point is he promised to give it to them, to bless them with it, and he called his people to obey them in going into it. Many of you know the story of C.T. Studd, wealthy Englishman, came to Christ, sold everything he had to take the gospel to the nations. Many sought to dissuade him from the church, but he went first to China, then to India. At the age of 50, decided retirement was not an option, so he spent the remaining years of his life proclaiming the gospel in Sudan. He died there. His grave became a stepping stone for what was known as the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade, spreading the gospel across Africa, Asia, and South America. C.T. Studd once wrote, believing that further delay would be sinful. Some of God's insignificance and nobody's in particular, but trusting in our omnipotent God have decided on certain simple lines according to the book of God to make a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. Too long, he said, We have been waiting for one another to begin. The time for waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear before the whole world, I before the sleepy lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world. We will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for him. We will live and we will die for him. And we will do it with his joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won and the end of the glorious campaign in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have real holiness, one of daring faith and works and obedience to Jesus Christ. Yes. Like those 
words summarize my prayer. When I think about this conference, when I think about this session in particular, that we as the church today would decide, by God's grace, we want to play our part in rendering the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to propose a, a particular utopian vision there, or even posit like a particular eschatological position. And I'm not saying, anyway, that we in this conference, we in the Western church alone can just pull up our bootstraps and complete the Great Commission. I'm not saying that we are ultimately sovereign over when disciples are made in every nation. God is sovereign over that. But our sovereign God has given us a specific goal. And it's crystal clear. He has commanded us. He's commanded us as his people to make disciples of all the peoples, of all the ethne of the world. He has given us a promise, his very presence, the power of his spirit to accomplish his plan. So empowered by his spirit on the brink of a world where thousands of people groups have yet to be reached with this gospel, billions of people, let us not be content with the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. Let us dare to trust our God. Let's venture our all for him. Let's live and die for him. Let's obey our king's command to make disciples of all the nations among the most difficult, dangerous to reach people groups in the world, and let's do it with his joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts every step of the way. Maybe the, maybe the final way I would pose this question, will you and I, the churches we lead, waste our lives in routine religion? Or will we spend our lives in radical devotion? Jesus has told us, make disciples of all the nations. I was in my quiet time this morning, Matthew chapter 7. He who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who's built his house upon a rock. The rains come, winds blow, beat against that house, but it will not fall. Why? Because he hears these words of mine and he does them. But he who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a man who built his house on sand. Rain came, streams rose, wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Right? Here we stand at our Kadesh Barnea. We have heard his words in the Great Commission. Will we do them? Let's pray. God, I, I pray in my own heart like I want to be obedient to you. I want to do all that you have called me to do, all that you will call me to do. I want to obey your word total abandon.
God, I trust, I trust people who are a part of this conference would say the same thing. So we say together, we hear your words, God. We see the land before us, the nations before us. So we lay our lives down and we pray, help us to obey. Help us to do all that you call us to do to fulfill your command in our lives to make disciples of the nations. God, I pray that even right now, right now, in this moment, you might call out more people to go to the nations. Even just provoked now knowing this is last session of the end of this day as we pray I just want to I want to challenge every single person who's listening right now before you go to bed tonight whenever you're listening to this before you go to bed tonight will you just get on your knees beside your bed this alone, or if you're married with your spouse, family, do it with kids. And just say, Lord, are you calling us to go and live where the gospel's not yet gone? God, I'm going to do that tonight in a fresh way. Today, I just want to put my life on the table before you. And as we all do that, pray that you would lead us and you would give us grace to obey however you are leading us. And I pray that you would help us to lead others to obey you in similar ways. God, we say together, we believe you are good. We trust you are great. So make us like Caleb and Joshua. Help us to follow your word and experience your blessing and spread your blessing that the land that the nations might know you are the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.